0: Welcome back to the backdrop, Untold Stories in Golf. Professor, how you doing this morning?
1: Just spent the whole morning redesigning my office. Oh. Yeah. You uh happy I with mean, the you outcome? Just, you, you do yeah, you just set up your office, right? You got I know you got some stuff hanging in the background. So people maybe have seen that that you went from a blank wall to whatever. Yeah, I
0: guess. Where, where's
1: your light? Where's your lighting at? You're not podcast uh, lighting. Obviously, podcast. We got to do something. Tell me about your lighting. What but you I'm got? not happy. I lost one of my lights. I had I had equal, you know, wattage hitting me
0: from both angles. No shadows. Right. But now I lost one. I got one. But they're high. They're high. They're pretty
1: high. up. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's keep them high in the morning. All right. So okay for work Continue productivity. Why? What is that? Work productivity. You want bright lighting high in the morning because you want light hitting the bottom of your eyes. That triggers the brain. Does all sorts of things chemically. But then, you know, I'm also a big believer in good sleep, right? We've talked about that before. As the day goes long, you actually want the lighting to go down in your visual field. So not only get a little softer in terms of brightness, but also lighting go down. So let's say you come back from lunch, two, three o'clock, turn off the bright highlighting. lighting, try to switch to lamps that are more eye level and just standard lamp lighting and phase that through the day. Helps again with productivity, helps with sleep, just keeps your circadian rhythm doing what it should be. So, wow, yeah. that's, that's light, how I just, huh? I need to add one lamp to my office, then I'll be able to make that little sort of phase shift throughout the day and follow that.
0: I'll i will send you some pictures. You, you tell me if this is appropriate. Maybe I have some shifts happening throughout the day and, and
1: the light moves around. I mean, um, again, with you and the kids, you're just trying to stay alive right now. So <laughs> get, just stay alive first and then, yeah, then we can just, work on that. Yeah,
0: just don't die of sleep deprivation. Uh, I want to—we're not going to spend ton ton of time in the intro today because we got Ralph Stokes on the pod. So uh, really awesome uh, guy that we met um, down in, in Georgia through what we're doing with New Club. And he's now the president— of the Georgia State Golf Association. He's the uh, official president. He was president-elect here for a while, but now he's in his term, early part of the term. And uh, he's he's also the first black president the GSGA has ever had. He was the first black football player at Alabama. Uh, his book is called One of the First. So uh, I want to get directly to that. Just a quick shout out to our sponsors of this podcast, our good friends at Golf Blueprint, Doc. It was great having Doc on the show last week. Uh, He's doing really great things with Golf Blueprint. I think the whole ball thing is going to really boon Golf Blueprint's business because people are going to be looking not at their equipment for improvement, but looking at themselves and trying to figure out, how do I get better at this silly little game? Uh, Golf Blueprint is the best way I've found to be able to do that. So thank you to them for the support. Uh, We'll see them at our spring meeting as the official partner there. And uh, let's get into the show without further ado. Welcome back to The Backdrop. Ralph Stokes, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, guys. Good to be
0: with you. My first question for you, Ralph, is uh, I know you you met Kevin and myself uh, the other day at a a nice lunch. You know, Kevin here is a tenured professor of of math education, so maybe I'll start with a question for Kevin first. Um, Professor, the uh, Alabama football has 16 national championships. Georgia has four. Uh, Using the last two years as a trend line, when does UGA catch the crimson tide?
1: Oh, wow. You're asking me to throw the guests under the bus already. And I I would hold back a little bit, but he already moved his camera to, to show that little Alabama sign in the background. I mean, first, that, that 16 number, we could get into the, the the politics and questioning around that. I don't know how accurate that number we, is or we, not. We, we say
2: 18. So yeah, there's some others that said 16, but that, that's okay. It'll you
1: be know, 20 in two it, months. It, it, it's
2: more than four.
1: <laughs> it is more than four. Um, all I'm going to say is I know where the trophy currently resides right now, and I could walk around the corner and I could touch it and hold it. And I'm just going to cherish that because who knows after next year, they don't happen often. There's a whole lot of luck to them unless you have Nick Saban as your coach. And I'm just hoping that Kirby's the next Nick Saban. I'm not going to pull David Pollock and like announce that right now, but I, I hope that is the case. And I'll keep my fingers crossed and I'll I'll sleep well for the next year. That's, that's all I can say.
2: Well, well, yeah, and I will follow that with championships are hard to win. It's not just on talent. It, it, you know the ball has to bounce your way. injuries has to be a you know, injuries play play a major part in championships. Um, and you know somewhere along the way you have the game like Georgia had against Missouri last year or you know almost every champion has a game where they don't play quite as well as they they normally play. And you just have to persevere and, and and win those games when you don't play well. And if you can get through those, that one or two uh, that you will have every year, <clears throat> then you have a chance to win a championship. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's hard to win championships. It's even harder to repeat. So I have a great respect for Kirby and the guys for doing what they did last year because repeating you know, the first year you, you may slip up on somebody or or the ball bounces your way, but second year everybody got that game circle because the national champions uh, come into town and it's hard to repeat. So, utmost of respect for for what the Bulldogs were able to accomplish.
1: I think there's a we could probably make a comparison to around the golf to a national championship season, right? Just like you said, there's a little bit of luck in there, there's a little bit of perseverance and. Even in our best golf rounds, I'm sure that whatever your lowest round is, you can think through two or three holes where like, yeah, it could have got sideways right there. I hit a ball a fairway over and got lucky and then recovered and hit a six iron to five feet and made the birdie. But that could have been a double just as easy. Um, Absolutely. That's a great, Absolutely. yeah, great point. I know We're going to dive into your football experience, I'm sure, at some yeah, point, Ralph. Yeah, so. there's, yeah.
0: No, there's there's so much we want to cover today. Before we get uh, to a lot of it, one, one local bit of golf um, – news i wanted to ask you about ralph is you're a longtime member at Atlanta country club and uh you know there's the course is, is current shutdown i'm just curious what you're most excited about with the renovations and all the work happening at a acc
2: yeah I, in fact i just left there this morning and uh yeah just seeing the fact that you know there's more bulldozers than wedges out there you know that's a, a different look for it but we're excited about the renovation. We're regrassing the whole course. We're putting uh, hydronics under the uh, greens, uh, heating and cooling systems under all the greens, under the practice greens. We're rebuilding uh, the the driving range and lengthening that. We're putting a teaching facility there. We're building a, a, a three-hole part three course. Uh, we will go back with a bent grass green, but with the heating and cooling system, we're confident that. That's gonna allow the greens to be in great shape year-round, and especially this summer, we'll be able to get them at great speeds. Uh, and you know, we're uh, going to from a Bermuda fairway to a Zoysia fairway, redesigning uh, four or five of the holes. So uh, you know, I'm excited about the new experience. I think uh, it, it was a premier golf course because the layout is so strong. But uh, after the renovation and the total regrassing. I think it, it will definitely be one of the premier courses in the Southeast and, and will for a while. So excited about what, what, what's to come. And hopefully we'll get it opened uh, December 1st or January 1st or so uh, after nine or 10 months of renovation and doing a few things to the clubhouse. And so lots of work at Atlanta Country Club. Excited about the, uh, the finished product.
0: I love the trend of more short courses and par three courses. And uh, now that more private clubs have started to adopt that, I think that's just such a great example for the game where, you know, kids and uh, friends that are non-golfers have that little bit more approachable version to, to, to go. Absolutely.
2: To. And, you know, it, it gives you a place to work on your short game, but it gives you know, families and, and others a place to go play and, you know, not feel pressured to get out of the way, or pressured to to keep moving. And uh, so you you can uh, host golf clinics and uh, teaching and training there. So I I think it will be a very good uh, place to bring people together.
1: Awesome. Ralph, for for those not in the know, you know, you've just recently entered an early stage of being the president of the GSGA. And and congratulations again on, on that honor and taking over the leadership in the state. It's an organization I value a lot from both the competitive golf scene, but then interacting with people like TRIP and initiatives that the GSGA leads. But I think a lot of people, including myself, are pretty clueless about what does it mean to be a president of a state organization like that? So if you could take a walk us through, you know, what is your role as president what are your top priorities for the GSGA moving forward during your term? You know, what are the things you'd like to accomplish and lead?
2: Well, yeah, first, you know, the Georgia State Golf Association is the governing body for the uh, for golf in the state of Georgia and for amateur golf. And, you know, it helps rates all the golf courses. It helps uh, with rules and regulations uh, on uh, play in the state of Georgia for uh, the amateurs. You have the PGA section that deals with the professionals. But for amateur golf, we set their guidelines there. We host a lot of uh, tournaments, whether it is state championships or play days just for members. And so the, the objective of the State Golf Association is serve the member clubs, all the clubs in the state, uh, are, are part of the Georgia State Golf Association and the members at each of the daily fee clubs or the uh, private clubs have opportunities to be a member of it. If you have a handicap, it comes through the Georgia State Golf Association. So we, we do a lot of things to support the game. We try to make sure that the game uh, is understood and, and share education as well as helping uh, with rules rules officials throughout the state and teaching uh, golf pros around the, uh, the state rules uh, so that they can administer their own golf, or golf tournaments at their clubs. So it, it engages with the, the, the golfers in this state in, in lots of ways. My objective is to continue the traditions of golf in Georgia and make sure that our association continues to lead but also to make sure that we are open to being more diverse in the way we accept our members and the things we do for our members, Um, and to make sure that our Hall of Fame is more diverse and the way we evaluate players and uh, people, uh, contributors to join in the Hall of Fame or be inducted in the Hall of Fame. So uh, growing the game, growing the number of Participants right now, we are serving about 88,000 golfers. Uh, i love to get that ab- above 95,000 in the next two years. I'd love to hit 100,000 uh, golfers in the state, uh, take, having membership with the state association. Uh, and uh, we want to make sure that as the game continues to change, and the face of the people playing the game changes. We've seen a lot more uh, women come into the game. We've seen a lot more uh, people of color come into the game. And uh, we wanna make sure we are addressing those people uh, that's coming into the game and offering things that they would want. And uh, in addition to that, you know, the reason that people play the game is changing. A lot of people play the game for social value. A lot of people play it for uh, health values and uh, relationships and those things. So we need to make sure as a state association, we're providing access, information and education to our member clubs, but also access to uh our members to participate in the game and for the reasons they want to participate and not just host championship events
1: what are to follow up on that what are some of the issues you see from like member clubs and them ter- trying to account uh, to use your wording there to accommodate sort of these new faces to the game you know in your mind what are those pressing issues and how can they best address those
2: well, like anything, you know, it, it, when you, you're saying we got new faces and new people and and they're asking for a little different things, it, uh, it, it that involves change. You know, very few people are comfortable with change. And so what our member clubs are facing is that, that, that changing to be more of a family club, a family uh, environment, than just a traditional country club where dad came on Saturday and played and hung out with all his buddies and left all the kids and mom at home. Today, you know, when people come to the course, they want to come with their their spouse and their kids and they want to spend time. And then when they do uh, uh, activities at the club, they want those activities to be inclusive of uh, inclusive of family members. So. That the the, uh, the dining facilities that we're providing, at, whether it's a daily fee club or a member club, they want to get away from that uh, men's only facility, men's locker rooms, and 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 have places where you know all the family can dine together and do things like that, and 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 at your pools and other things. It, it needs to be more engaging. We need more pickleball. We need other things at clubs. To bring families in. So uh, there, there's a lot of things that that change uh, that needs to change. Clubs are, are dealing with, but you got some established members are saying, well, this isn't the same place that I joined 10 years ago. I'm not comfortable with all the changes that's going forth. Um, and so, you know, the clubs having to balance that. To feel, uh, and, and especially a lot of daily fee clubs that's trying to bring members in on a Sunday afternoon, bring uh, uh, the families in, and you've got the hardcore golfers saying, Well, it used to be me and my guys out here, so it's balancing all of this because you don't want to run away the, the people that uh help uh, uh establish all of the, the traditions of the game and the, and the facilities that, that have flourished. So, uh, it's
0: a little bit of adjusting. <clears throat> Ralph, <clears throat> I, I want to jump to, uh, in preparation of our chat and just getting to know you, I, I um, picked up your book, which is okay. one of the first lessons I learned while overcoming challenges of integration. And man, I am very happy I picked that up, Ralph. It is a very inspiring book. I think it, uh, n- not only with issues of integration and race, which is is obviously throughout, and we'll talk a little bit about, but just your leadership style. And and uh, I'll get to sales as well. I know you spent a lot of your career in sales. So did I, but I, that's the only thing I could do out of college was try to convince people to buy things. So uh, man, did I find so much of it uh, to resonate with me. And so I got some questions for you around it. Um, I'd like to start with your calling. I think early in the book, you said, that your calling was to advance the cause of integration. and yes. it's it's clearly been a running theme in your in your life, Ralph. So w- take us back to when you realized that. When did you realize that that would be part of your story, part of your higher purpose?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. yeah, it, uh, as I stumbled into what that higher purpose was, uh, you know, I, I grew up in Montgomery, Alabama, and I grew up uh, playing football and baseball. And, you know, with the dream of, I I saw my dad on a minor league baseball, a Negro league baseball team. And I saw so many really talented athletes playing on his baseball team and at our high school football team there in Montgomery, uh, a a high school called Booker T. Washington High School that had strong history of winning and and, uh, really great coaching staff. And my whole dream was to one day Play at this this all black school and contributed uh, on their team with all like all the great athletes that I had seen, and fortunately, you know, I I was as I grew, uh, I had the opportunity to uh, play for Booker T Washington and actually make the team, and I made the team with my brother, and I was a running back, and my brother was a running back, and it was such a great privilege to to start in, in the same backfield with my brother and, and play at this iconic school. And so, you know, my whole dream was to, to, to make this team and maybe win, uh, a, you know, the, the championship of the black high school uh, programs in the state of Alabama. And as we were progressing through it, my senior year, uh, going into my uh, 11th grade year, junior year, they closed my high school. And uh, when they closed the high school, they moved, uh, they divided that team up into four different schools. And I went from playing football at Booger T. Washington High School to Robert E. Lee High School, which was a kind of crazy kind of contrast of names and what they represented. but. Uh, about 10 to 12 of us was uh, forced to go to Robert E. Lee to play on this football team that had great traditions as well, but they had 60 to 65 white players and we got 10 to 12 of us trying to make this, this team. And you know, the, the neighborhood wasn't quite welcoming to uh, the, the 10 to 12 black players. And they called us names as we walked through the neighborhood to go over there. But in there, we had to learn to try to be a team. And from my perspective, it was trying to get over some of the preconceived thoughts that I had and that, you know, our coaches had told us the reason they don't want to integrate systems because the black athletes are so much superior athletes. They are so much better. And the white kids are soft and they can't play. And the white teammates have been told for years that, the, you know, we can't integrate the system because we would dominate because the black athlete may be a good athlete, but they're not very smart. They can't comprehend systems. They don't know things. you know We would outsmart them in such a way that they just can't compete. Well with both of those sides coming in with those preconceived prejudices. To make a team, we, it was going to be really challenging to bring this, this teams together. And with so many of the white players uh, not necessarily wanting their team to be integrated, it was a challenge for the 10 to 12 of us as black players. But what we learned through this whole process, and this is part of what I wrote the book about, the lessons learned is how do you bring teams together, whether it's families or businesses, blended families, businesses today some when you have a lot of people with different viewpoints and different ideas, uh, and the, at the core of what we learned there was that we had to first learn to respect each other. We had to get beyond the prejudices. We had and the, our coaches did a great job with that one day when it was about a 100 degrees in Montgomery and the heat index was about 110 and they put us out there for two plus hours which they wouldn't let them do the day and just ran us into the ground and then after about two hours they said let's start practice and we went out and beat each other into just you know a a smithereen there it was awful but one of the things that I learned that day, and and, and, and the black players were walking home, is said, you know, as tough as it was, when they said, you have to score one more time to get off this field, I had two or three linemen look at me and say, hey, Ralph, run behind me. I will make the block. And I'm looking at these guys, and I know they're, they're tired. They're fatigued. They're bigger, and they've lost all this weight in this heat. But they were still willing to do their job, even in all of this stress. And, and some of the defensive players say it was the same thing. They were impressed that, you know, when they said, you make one more stop, you get off this field. And these guys said, I will do it. I'm the guy that's going to make the play. And what we said there, we may not like these guys. We may not understand these guys, but we respect the fact that their work ethic and their commitment to winning and doing that job is tremendous. So that was the first day we made major steps toward becoming a team because we learned to respect each other. And I, I would tell anyone, if you're trying to bring family together, blended family, bring a business together, bring uh, you know your organizations together, first thing you're going to have to do is build some common respect for each other. Secondly, you have to have a goal bigger than one person can achieve by himself. The second thing we did there was to focus on winning a championship, getting beyond, I'm gonna lead the team in rushing, or I'm gonna have this many touchdowns, or I'm gonna make this many tackles. Let's get beyond beyond the goals that you can accomplish by yourself and establish something that we're gonna reach for as a unit as as in you know, as a team not as individuals and when we established that we could be a championship team and we were going to do whatever it takes to win a championship as a unit so we got first step respect second step goals bigger than any one individual can accomplish and then a work ethic to get to get it done together and we were fortunate after that to um go on to win the state championship at the highest level and i was fortunate to uh, lead the team in rushing and in touchdowns uh, and uh, was voted the number one player in the state and the number three running back in the nation uh number one in the southeast and uh, it, it it went well but the lessons i learned and the responsibilities given to me after that Told me that this was my role because I led a lot of that integration with our teams and became captain of that football team. um, One part, Ralph,
0: about your decision, you know, getting to that calling is you were looking to your your mentors. And and I think I've come around on the idea of mentors and major influences. When I was a kid, I, I didn't want anybody's help. You know, I thought I was a hot shot. I thought I had the answers. I, I had a lot of failure to to take me to the point where I now really, um, I have a deep curiosity in people's major influences and the people that shape them. And so as soon as I, I knew we were chatting, I I was hopeful I'd learn a little bit about yours. And there's one in particular I want to ask you about, and that's Johnny Mae Stokes, your mother. Um, there was probably my favorite story in the book had to do with her first meeting with Coach Bear Bryant, but I, I'm just enthralled with with this woman, and I would like you to tell us a little bit about her, and and if you if you're willing, share that story about her the first time she met um, Coach Bear Bryant recruiting her her little Ralph.
2: Well, yeah, that's one of the stories, and, and I'm I'm fortunate uh, that that I speak a lot across the country, and you know, and people of that book has done my book of uh, one of the first has done extremely well. And so I get a lot of invitations from corporates and from uh, charitable organizations to uh, to talk about some of the stories of the book and talk about some of the lessons that I, I, I've learned and I talk about in this book. But w- most people ask that, you know, give me two stories, three stories from the book, but make sure you give me the story of Bear Bryant and your mother. So that's <laughs> always-
0: All right, so fun. I'm not unique. I, I figured- <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's a requested story. But, you know, the basis of the story, my mother was an outstanding lady and and she had a lot of high values uh, that she passed on to uh, my two brothers and my two sisters and I that uh, that has stayed with us and carried us for for a, a long time. But I was fortunate, uh, as I said, to become captain of the team and and the number one uh, player in the state. And so I received over 100 written scholarship offers from all across the the nation, from Southern Cal and Notre Dame, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, Auburn, you name it. I was fortunate to be a pretty good student, had academic offers from Princeton and several other major schools. And... uh, So my mom finally came to me, mom and dad, and said, you know, we respect you. We know that, uh, you know, you've earned the right to make this decision. We're gonna allow you to make the decision where you want to go to school. The only guideline we tell you is that you cannot go to Alabama and play for Bear Bryant. That's the only restriction we have because my mom said, I saw Paul Bear Bryant stand up on national TV and say he would never recruit a black player. And so that's the, that's the only place we draw the line. We know he's a racist, but you can't go there. And because I had grew up in Montgomery, but I wasn't an Alabama fan because uh, you know he just, you know, I like watching him play, but Alabama Auburn was about the same to me. And uh, so I had no real ties to going to Alabama. So I told the recruiters, Alabama's off the list, we're moving on. And they told Coach Bryant, Coach Bryant's response was, no, unacceptable. He's the number one player in the state, outstanding running back. We need him in our system. What do I have to do to change, uh, change your mind? And my mom said, he needs to come to Montgomery, at, uh, Montgomery, Alabama to my house because I wouldn't go three feet to see him. And he needs to come to my house look me in the eye and tell me he didn't say that and coach Bryant's response was when can i show up okay that's an interesting response so friday afternoon five o'clock coach paul Bear bryant comes to inner city montgomery to see this little black kid and meet his uh, parents that in itself was a huge a big deal and so when Coach Bryan came to my house, there were people outside the gate. There were people everywhere. There were police out there managing. To, it was a huge deal. And uh, so Coach Bryan and he had a guy, Coach Richard Williamson, who used to be the, the Carolina Panthers coach, who was a coach at Alabama there, uh, came with him and one of the other local recruiters. And they came and my mom, my dad, and my sister were there with with me. And the classic confrontation was my mom, who's about five, nine, tall lady, met Coach Brian, who's six, four, six, five at the time. She met him on the porch and she stood, we had one step up and she stood up on that top step. And when he came to the door and she greeted him because she was on that top step, they were almost standing face-to-face, and she was, I mean, they were eye-to-eye looking each other in the eye, and she opened the conversation with, Coach Bryant, it is such an honor to have you here at our home. We are honored that you would come here uh, to our home in Montgomery to see us, but I want to know, why are you here? She said, Coach, I know I saw you stand up and say on national TV that you would never recruit a black player. If I'm not mistaken, this young man standing here is black. Why are you here? And his response was, yes, ma'am, I did say that. And and just to paint the picture, it was like just the two of them there and they're face to face. And he had this pregnant pause of, Yes, ma'am. I did say that. But I was wrong. I was wrong. I'm still not here to recruit a black player. I'm here to recruit a football player. And your son happens to be a very good one. It's, oh, okay. No, coach, that's not, that's not enough. Coach, you know, why would uh, I let him come to Alabama and play for you? You see? You have no other Black players up there. And they did have two other Black players had just signed, one one at the time, and then another one came in. So, you know, uh, you know why would I let him come up there and and, and play for you? Who's going to take care of him up there? And Coach Bryant looked at her and said, I will take care of him. I will be his father away from home. I will make sure... He's taken care of. (sighs) Okay. No, coach, that's not enough. You know, that sounds good, coach, but you can't be with him every day. And when he's walking across campus and and when he's going going to class, you know, they're going to be ugly to him. They're going to call him names. And Coach Bryant said, yes, ma'am. They probably will call him names. But if I didn't think he was man enough to deal with it, I wouldn't be here. <sighs> okay. No, Coach. Coach, that's not, that That sounds good, Coach. But, you know, how are you going to treat him, Coach? You have no other black players. Are you going to treat him the, the same as everybody else? How, how are you going to treat him same as all the other players? And Coach Bryant thought for a moment, hesitated a little bit, and said, no, ma'am, I will not treat him the same as the other players. I'll treat him fair. Wow. It's like, wow, OK. And then she asked him one or two other questions. And, and then she paused for a moment and she said, oh, OK, coach, welcome. Come on in the house. Can I get you a glass of tea? And so Coach Brian and Coach Richard Williamson came in they sat, they talked about for, talked for about 45 minutes to an hour. By the way, at this time, my father did ask questions in, in, when they got in the house. But when they were face-to-face and they were face-to-face, I mean, it was, a, uh, nobody else said a single word. Nobody else asked the question. It was just Coach Brian and my mom face-to-face. She was going to make sure she got her answers, um, and you know, later, Coach Bryan said he was impressed more with, with the confrontation and the discussion in the house. She never asked, or my father never asked, about playing time or guaranteed commitment to make the team or do the, she, you know, he said she only asked about education, going to class, who's gonna make sure he gets his uh, studies, those things. He said she was made committed to his future not just in football and the next morning my mom uh, and dad uh, said to me at breakfast that you know we still think that this is your decision we respect your ability to make the decision but we would say if if we were you we would think seriously about going to Alabama and playing for that man he made that much impression on her in that one hour visit He never ran away from the things he did, the things he said. He owned his his issues, uh, but he made commitments to going forward in the right way. So, yeah, I have a great degree of respect for Coach Bryant. Uh, As I said, playing for Coach Bryant was difficult, but you either loved the man, which I did, or hated his guts because you didn't understand why he pushed you, but he pushed you every single day on and off the field to be the best you could be. And I had a great deal of respect for him. My mom did. Their birthdays were both the same. They were both birthdays of nine eleven. And so uh, uh, 9-11, they celebrated. He sent her flowers and personal cards every year. Even after I graduated, he sent her personal notes on 9-11. Thanking her and and celebrating, he was truly committed to doing the right things.
1: Well, so let's fast forward then. Like you know, approximately a year later, and you're showing up the campus on Alabama, and you're going to go play football. What attitude did you take forward in terms of stepping on the campus, and what was your experience like when you know getting there and then getting immersed into the University of Alabama and their football program?
2: Yeah, my my commitment was you know. I, in much like when I went to Robert U. Lee and going to Alabama, I, you know, I was a football player. Uh, I wasn't. People asked, weren't you afraid? Weren't you concerned? Which I, I'm a football player. That's what I do. You know, I go. I I, I had the, the, the confidence that I could make the classes and pass the classes. That wasn't a concern of mine. And it's just. I wanted to go there, I wanted to get a business degree, and I wanted to make sure that um, I had an opportunity to participate and play. And so, you know, that was the last year that uh, freshmen couldn't play uh, in 1971 was the last year you, you had to play freshman ball uh, as opposed to being able to play varsity ball. But I made the All-SEC, first team All-SEC running back as a freshman. and. So I had a really good year uh, in there, and uh, but you know it, my 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 commitment was, was I, I was a football player, and so um, and that's what I did, uh, and and I had three good years playing varsity, didn't achieve the 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 goals that I had set because I ended up with three separated shoulders during this time. I had uh, cracked ribs, broke my jaw. Uh, broke my wrist twice, a few injuries that to go along with some challenges there. But we were fortunate as a team. I led it each year. Uh, uh, We won four SEC championships and one national championship in that time. Uh, I'm fortunate to be in the Bear Bryant uh, Museum uh, there and was just honored by the business school uh, as one of the, uh, the first graduates, uh, African American graduates from the business school there. So I uh, served on the business school board. So I feel good about the, the, the uh, matriculation at the university and the things that I was able to uh, accomplish there and open some doors for some other people that uh, came behind.
0: Ralph, the, the there's so many firsts we, we could ask about. Um, and that's that's why I think the book title is such a beautiful, perfect kudos to your marketing team, whoever came with one Thanks. of the first, because you just start to, I could run down a list of all these things that, you know, you advanced the integration in, right? And, and in the insurance industry was one of them. So uh, yeah. we actually share the ins- that in common, that my last stop before... Finding my calling of the golf industry was the insurance business. I worked for a, a technology company that did health insurance in, in Chicago. And um, you made a 30-year career yes. out of insurance to the highest levels. Uh, and I, there's plenty of stories I could ask you. I guess first, I, I wanted to um, ask what it was like, because being in that industry— I think in in much more recently as of 20 I guess 16 I was still in it that there isn't a lot of integration there was not many of my colleagues were black and and I just as I read your your stories of how you made it to that pinnacle of the industry I I, I want to just get your sense of what that was like to to break into a business world versus you know you did it in football you did you 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 did it in golf but uh, from a business standpoint in the insurance world what that was like for you
2: well yeah it, it was interesting when, when I joined I joined a company it was based out of Chattanooga Tennessee called Provident Life and Accident later became part of Unum and Unum Provident and uh, and then a Unum organization. And uh, when I joined Provident, they had no, uh, never had a black sales rep uh, selling to corporations uh, around the country. And uh, the one of the, the the gentleman from Montgomery that had helped recruit me to go to Alabama was an insurance agent that in, in, in talked me into taking this job with, with uh, the insurance company, and you know the, the goal was to sell to. Major corporations in the southeast uh, so employee benefits medical dental vision and when I looked around there were no black people working for. uh, Prudential or Blue Cross or there was no black people in the southeast at all selling the the benefits and so for me, uh, it was. An opportunity to do something that no one else was doing and later travelers had hired a black gentleman here in Atlanta and and, um, Aon hired a a good friend of mine a few years later but uh, for me it was just an opportunity to do something different I didn't know what insurance was I didn't understand it but. You know, it was just an opportunity to, to to do something different. And trying to talk to broker consultants about it and talk to major e- employers about the benefits wasn't easy in the uh in that mid 70s time frame and 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 a lot of them just really didn't want to talk to me. So, you know, you you could get in the door because they said, "Oh, you played for Bear Bryant and football was king in the South." So, you know, everybody would start the conversation, every conversation, what was Bear really like? Can you tell me what Bear was really like? <laughs> okay. Uh, so that, that was the, my opening question. And doesn't I'm hurt. <laughs> uh, but what, 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 what I learned is that, you know, it, knowledge and ability to execute can take you a lot of places. And the game of golf helped me in in this business career a lot because, you know, you you go to business school and people will teach you how to have a conversation in business school. You and I can have lunch together three times. You and I and and your spouse or whomever can have dinner twice at the five meals with you and meetings and stuff. I still have no idea who you are because you've been taught to have conversations without revealing a lot of who you are. But the game of golf, when you go out there for four hours on a golf course, either you hit the, the shot of your life and the, you know, you're know you so exuberant over that shot, you, you, you get excited, you relax, and I start to see the real you come out. Or you're so frustrated with the game, the ball just sits there and you can't hit it and you get so frustrated with it and, str- and you're struggling with it that all of a sudden that frustration brings the real you out in the game. And so after one round of golf, I would learn more about a person than I would learn in four dinners and, and, and two lunches. So I learned to, to play, my bosses forced me to play. I didn't wanna play the game, but you know, I learned. And then after trying to play the game, being a good athlete, uh, it, it, the fact that that ball sat there and I couldn't strike it and I couldn't hit it straight was frustrating. And I learned to try to do those things um, but the game helped me a lot. But eventually you had to get down to actually knowing insurance and being able to communicate benefits and, and, and value propositions. And as the book will, will tell you, there was my first story where I, I had a meeting with my first major uh, client, opportunity to, to sell a case. Um, and the president, I was told the day before, I couldn't go make, meet with the president because the president of this large corporation was rather racist and he wouldn't meet with me and uh, and he probably wouldn't buy from me. So uh, I said, you know, and they said, we will pay you, but let's send somebody else to close the deal for you. And I said, now, if I'm going to be paid, I'm going to do the work. So I would go make the sale. So. I went in and I I took a junior person that had just been working with us for two weeks, didn't know anything about it, but they said, just take him with you uh, on the ride. White gentleman. when we went in to make the presentation, the the president of that company would not meet, would not address me, wouldn't speak to me, wouldn't say, wouldn't ask questions to me and He would ask it to this young man that was with me who was only there for two weeks. Then he barely knew where the office was. He couldn't answer the question. So every time he asked a question, he would ask uh, Tom, I would answer the question. And that went on for a little while. But then at the end of it, he asked two or three questions uh, that when he asked Tom, I tried to answer. I didn't know the answer. I couldn't give him the answer because I just didn't know the material. I couldn't communicate it. I didn't make a strong presentation in, in and of itself. It's just the presentation itself wasn't very strong. So I, unfortunately, I didn't get that job, didn't get that uh, account. And I went back to my office and my boss first response was, you didn't get the business. No, I did. Well, it's not your fault because he was he's a racist and I know he was a racist and I knew he wasn't gonna give you a fair shot. And don't you worry about it. And I said to my boss, a guy named Marshall, so Marshall, he may have been a racist, probably was. it wasn't that material to the fact that I did a poor job. I didn't prepare well. I didn't know the materials. I didn't do a strong presentation. So much of my failures there were on me, not on the fact that this gentleman was a racist or not. I, I, it was immaterial. I didn't do the job well. So I made a commitment that day that I was going to not be the best black insurance salesman in the South. I was going to be the best black, uh, best salesperson, black, white or green. And I I continued and went back to school, got uh, four separate insurance degrees, a a CLU degree, a chartered life on the right as a fellow of the Life Management Institute, Health Insurance of America degree. and so. I, I went back, I studied I I did lessons on presentations. I did, I became really good at my job and you know, fast forward seven years later, I had this presentation to a huge company uh, and two days or so before they told me, you can't go in and make the presentation because the person that, the president of this company is not just a racist, he's the imperial wizard of the Ku Klux Klan of Mill, Tennessee, and he will not meet with you. But, but we'll send your team in, because that time I had a team, and, he, and, and if successful, you'll be paid. My same response. I don't, you know, this is not a charitable program. I don't take charity. If, if we're gonna, you know, get paid, I will do the work. And so from there, I went in to meet with the imperial wizard of the Ku Klux Klan of Middle Tennessee. Same thing. He wouldn't address me. He wouldn't ask me questions. He would address Bill, my, my counterpart, with me. and That wasn't Bill's role to answer the question. So he asked Bill, I answered the question. He asked Bill another one, I answered the question. And eventually, he stopped asking Bill. He just started, but he wouldn't address me. He started throwing the questions up in the air well, what if this happened? And I would answer. And then eventually after two or three of those, he actually started to look at me and said, okay, you know so much, what if this happens? I answered the question. And he said, tell me about this. And I answered the question. But at the beginning of the presentation, I had set the guidelines of, here's what we're gonna to do today. We're gonna walk through this. I'm gonna tell you what I, I, I plan to do in this presentation. I'm going to address, uh, tell you what I'm gonna do, answer your questions, explain to it, and, and make sure you you get all the information. And then I'll recap the major uh, pre, the major points of my presentation and give you what I feel is our value proposition for you. I explain the whole program of what we would do in the meeting, I executed to that program, I answered all his questions. At the the end, he finally started looking me in the eye and said, okay, tell me how you would handle this. And I did. At the end of that meeting, he stood up, looked me in the eye and said, sir, you did a good job. We will put our benefits with you. And he extended his hand to me across the table and shook my hand and said, job well done. And for most people, I would tell you the lessons learned there was much like a football game. We executed on that day, but we won, the process was done in the seven years of prep. And it's like a football game you know, you execute football games on on Saturday. Games are won Monday through Friday in the preparation. If if you're standing, there, if you're a defensive back and you're watching this wide receiver in the film, and you know every time he runs a out pattern, he will cheat right before the ball is snapped. He's going to edge a foot or two inside because he wants to give himself a little room. You can see that in the film. He runs that out pattern, he takes it. When he runs a go route, he starts leaning forward. He always leans a little forward when he runs a go route. So you watch films enough that you see all these tendencies. So one on that day, third down in 11 or so, you see him come, and then he takes a step or two to the inside Toward the, you know, trying to get further inside that hash mark, and you know he's running the out route because you studied, you prepare, and you break on that pass and you make the interception. You executed the interception on Saturday afternoon. That play was made Monday through Friday in prep. My success with the Imperial Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan was made during that seven years of prep. And preparing myself, it was executed on that day. But in life, if you're not willing to do the work and do the prep, you just can't win on just talent. You got to do the work. So that that day taught me you know, that that's part of the lessons in life: do the work.
0: I <clears throat> it was one of the the whole sections of the book, Ralph, that I found most inspiring was your, your experiences in sales. And, um, I, I believe it or not, even today with what we do at New Club, I get a lot of opposition for folks that maybe don't think clubs without real estate should be a thing in golf. Who don't think golf societies are necessarily have, have a place in golf. And I was really surprised by that especially knowing the roots of the game. And Scotland still has thousands of, of golf societies. And and a lot of people who are in favor of the concept have always told me like, oh, they, you know, they're old or they don't get it or these other things. And, and honestly, it's so easy. It's, I think the human impulse to buy into that makes you feel better, doesn't it? It's not me. Yeah. But yes. reading that section of the book and when you hit that opposition and you said, I got to be better. I mean, I I I basically jumped out of bed an hour earlier the next day and said, "I'm gonna I'm gonna improve this presentation, man. We gotta we gotta figure this out." So anybody that's listening that's in sales will identify. You know, they might not identify with being a, a black man selling to the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, but they definitely can identify with ob- objections, opposition, uh, trying to get people to connect right and and so i thank you for sharing that story that, that was just so wonderful to read for me
2: just um, you, you have to own it you you have to be accountable for your own results and you know and, and and don't make excuses you know don't lie to yourself know who you are and own your your results and be accountable for the results you know you you're part of it. be accountable don't don't blame somebody else for your your results and your failures are you successes us uh let's shift back into golf and we'll end we'll end it all there
0: because uh you have played all over the world um i I am very jealous of your whole uh <laughs> resume of golf courses um I think I'm gonna ask it from this standpoint wh- what is a place that just the overall golf club experience when you visited uh, you, you reflect on most often. What's one that really stands out where you go, you know, everything from the course to the, the pulling in, like wh- where's a place that you just say is that is a world-class golf experience?
2: Yeah, M- Muirfield in Scotland is my favorite place on the planet because of the experience of it. Yeah, I, interesting, I was playing golf recently with a gentleman who said, you know, I hated Muirfield. It's the hardest golf course that you know that it, it's so rough and penal. Uh, if you get out of the fairway, you can't find your ball or sunset so, so you know. So we all have different viewpoints and different opinions and there. But the the experience at Mirfield the way they treat you from the time you get to the parking lot, to you know, and that yes, they do still require you to put a jacket on to go inside to have lunch and so. But it is a great experience in there. you know uh you know whether it's augusta national here or national golf links in uh long island or so um pine valley treats you so well uh it 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 is just there's a lot of places in this country that really you know know how to treat a golfer they make you feel welcome they make you you feel good and you know much like atlanta country club and, and our pro scott schroeder yeah, you know, when you hit the grounds, everybody on that property knows your name. They know, you know, uh, what shirt you're wearing, what hat you're wearing. So when they walk up to you, you say, Matt, how's your game today? You know, and say, Kevin, are you having a good round? Can I get you anything? That's from, the, you know, when the greenskeeper drives past you, he says, Kevin, how, how's your game? What's going on? You know, they make you feel welcome on that property that you you're part of, uh, of the, they want your experience to be great that day, and and those are the clubs where you walk away. You know, you, it used to be if I, I played well, I liked the course. If I played poorly, I didn't like the course. I finally matured enough to understand it's not just about how 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 many birdies you make or how many doubles you make on there, but it's the experience of the, the people there and how they make you you feel and feel welcome, and there's so many clubs that do that well. And by the way, you know, and and, and Robert Trent Jones, of course, the Bears, Trails, and some of the other daily fee co- courses around the Southeast, they've done a really good job of, uh, of replicating a lot of what private clubs do. So you know, for a lot of our, our members or our, our people playing the game, you don't have to be members of private clubs to get that great experience these days. And I like that.
0: Yeah, the, the um, and there was a, a chapter in your book, uh, America's Country Clubs, Black Golfers Need Not Apply. So talking okay. about the cause of integration with with country clubs. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. And, and you know, you were the first Black member at, at – Atlanta Country Club. And I'd love to hear just, you know, clubs need to be more welcoming, but what else can we do, Ralph? What else needs to be done? Because again, kind of like my insurance experience, I know we've made progress. I know that things have, have certainly improved from the time that you probably uh, joined uh, the, your first country club, but it doesn't always feel like it to where we where we sit. And I have, you know, black members in new club that tell me all the time, like, yeah, it's this place doesn't feel very welcome. It doesn't feel like I'm a part of this. And from your, from where you sit, you you've been through it all. What 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 are your thoughts around it?
2: Yeah, and, and by the way, for the record, I wasn't the first black at Atlanta Country Club. I was set to be the first black to to enter. And and the day before, they call in and says, "Can you wait a, a few days? We want to bring this other black gentleman in because <laughs> if we bring you in." the, the p- newspapers and everybody's gonna make a big deal about the first black member. And they're gonna say, we went and got an athlete. We got this football player. So they brought in a gentleman named Eula Adams, who was a, a, an accountant. And and I came in uh, the next week um, and and joined Atlanta Country Club. Eula wasn't there but a, uh, a couple of years and he moved to Denver. So for eight, nine years, I was the only black member at Atlanta Country Club there. But, you know, one of the things that I found is, is, as I said, if you go to most of the elite clubs in our, our country, whether it's Shinnecock, uh, Cypress Point, or San Francisco Golf Club, or Augusta National, they treat you like royalty. It doesn't matter if you're blue, white, green. It, they, they treat you, whether they want you there or not, they're going to treat you well and make you feel welcome. Where I found the most difficulty is in those mill ground early, you know, first level country clubs where the the sales guy just made enough money to join the club. And part of joining these mill level country clubs was to separate themselves from the average guy, from from these hourly paid people, these low lives, and so So they wanted to separate themselves, and and they don't have the confidence in themselves and their club. And it's like, I was trying to become elite. I was trying to, you know, get value to myself. So it's their lack of confidence that shows most of the time. But that's where, I, in all my years, I've had the most difficulties is in those middle level clubs where, got, you know, they got eight, ten thousand dollars 10000 initiation fees, or, you know, they, they, they got a lot of Uh, families where they barely could make it into the the country club and you go there and they wanted to be separated from the the, the working class people and they want to be thought of as elite people so they don't want you there they treat you bad they you know I found that to be the place you know where I was treated worse and and I tell the story in the book in a book about a, a club, of uh, course, I went to in Alabama, uh, where I just went in as a single and asked them to to play one day and and played and I was treated so bad. But uh, you just learn those those people don't have enough confidence in themselves to feel good about themselves. So their objective is to try to put you down in order to make themselves feel better, and 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 you just have to. You know, you're not gonna win with fighting them. You're not gonna win with anger and so You just have to understand that it's not you. It's their issue more than your issue, and so I'm gonna conduct myself the way I feel like I should always conduct myself. I will never lower myself to your level. I will never lower myself down to that 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 person that's one to be nasty and objective. I have too much respect for me to lower myself to your standards.
1: It seems like I've been just listening a lot during this podcast uh, session, Ralph, and this is it's so great to hear your story and just your messaging. It, It seems like integrity is a big quality trait of yourself and something you try to carry with you. Where does that come from?
2: That, you know, that, that trait is, um, you yeah, I, I come with a strong spiritual base given to me by my mother and father and my grandmother. But, you know, it was interesting. Yeah, on the day of the Selma to Montgomery march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge and, uh, from Selma to Montgomery, huge, big deal. Martin Luther King walking. My mom allowed my oldest brother and oldest sister to attend that march. But my brother that was a year and a half older and myself and my younger sister, she wouldn't allow us to attend the march. But we watched that march on TV and something she said in that that day was this stayed with me and, and my brother for a long, long time is that during that march, she stopped and said you know, to the three of us, I want you guys to understand that not every white person that you meet is your enemy. Not every white person you meet hates you, but also importantly, not every black person that comes up to you with a raised fist of black power, not everyone is your friend. And I want you guys to treat people with respect, but judge people based on how they treat you. Judge people on who they are, not by how they look. Because not every black one is your friend and not every white person is your enemy. And that has stayed with me and my family for a long time. I shared that with my two daughters and two granddaughters that just people on how they treat you, not on what you think of uh, they are going to do or what it, it, it's like, you know, where we get locked up into is like, just because they look like me, they must be great and they must be for me. My greatest business mentors was a a white man from Greenville, South Carolina that had grown up and he and his family grew up in Mississippi and were part of the Klan. And he became a mentor of mine, kind of a a, a father of business to me. And he taught me more about business ethics and, and business behavior than anybody. Uh, and later his daughter came to work for me and, and that family has been, you know, close to me forever, but judge them on who they are and how they treat you. Uh,
0: some of your comments, Rabbi. I had a question around how we speak about, uh, race and golf, I think has, um, you know, for, this is more a question coming from a, a generation a generation to another generation right so like i kevin and i didn't live through the civil rights movement and words like uh, segregation and integration really weren't a part of the conversation for us right for a, for very good reasons by the way hopefully um, yes. but but my question is this i think that we've talked about race in in the game of golf uh more encoded terms, right? I think grow the game has been a, a cliched term that really has, has started to represent that we need more black golfers participating at more places and um, and seeing different races and different sexes all kind of participate. But my, my question, I guess, maybe a more straightforward way to ask it is, should we be talking about integration as, as an active term in in this? Uh, you say it throughout your book and, and it was needed in in Alabama at the time you were coming up, but is it needed now? Should we be saying golf needs to integrate?
2: Yeah, yeah, we should be saying it, but you know, it's like any, anything else you get more with honey than you do with vinegar and So so sometimes you don't fight the fight necessarily head-on as, as I said to the association and as for our game itself and from the PGA Tour Superstore standpoint we, we we the game of golf has great traditions that we want to hold on to there you know we love this game because of you know the fact that it's a game game of honesty you call your own penalties it's a game where where you know you you write down your own scores and so you know you don't lie you don't cheat so the, it's a game with great value we want to hold on to those values but you're right, when you start to talk about, you know, we we want to grow the game, that is a quote unquote negative response to a lot of people because what they interpret that to mean is that we wanted to get rid of all the old white men and we want to bring in women and people of color. We are not, you know, as part of my role as diversity officer for the PGA Tour Superstore, and what the the things I want to do at this Georgia State Golf Association is to be more inclusive, not exclusive. We don't want to run anybody off. We don't want to run away from all the great traditions that the game is built on. But we want to bring others in to enjoy those traditions and those values that the game offer. And so, yes, a lot of people interpret Grow the Game in a negative way but what we see is that this game has taught me so much. It's opened so many doors for me. I want to share that with others. And whether when we say people of color, we're talking uh, you know, uh, Hispanic, Asian, uh, African American, uh, you know, pe- people of all all race and, and colors and we want to make sure that those with disabilities are included and have access to the game, and and the courses are creating access for those with disabilities. So, you know, it's an inclusive environment that we want to do through our adaptive golf program. To making sure youth on course and young people are given opportunities to play and not run off the course like that they used to do with the old men run, you know, the, the young folks off the course. We want that to be an environment where they feel welcome and they can enjoy the game. So, yes, I think, you know, we want to integrate the game, but... We're going to speak in terms that may be a little different. Instead of let's just go straight at you and challenge you to integrate, we're going to talk about being more inclusive and be, and we're going to speak in terms of growing the game, which means bringing people in that uh, from uh, that had less opportunities to participate in the past.
0: Yeah. Well, we, we we're not going to keep it too much longer, Ralph. Thank you uh, again for we know you got a call coming up and this has been such a treat for me um uh, just to to connect with you and you know we we view what we're doing at new club to be leaders in in golf and if we're going to be leaders in golf we need to reach out to folks like yourself that have just such a wealth of of knowledge and experience and um i took a lot from this conversation i hope those those listening at home did uh, I am going to put you on the hot seat, though, because we, we are partnered with the Georgia State Golf Association this year for an event on September 19th at Rivermont Golf Club, one of my favorite places in, in all of Georgia to play golf. Um, we're going to try to raise a lot of money for, for Youth On Course. Ralph, I know you're a great fundraiser. Can, can I count on you for a, a foursome,
2: maybe two? Matt, I will tell you, if you will share the information, we will figure out a way to participate at some level.
0: <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> very, uh, very diplomatic of you, sir. Yeah. I, uh, I I want as, as many folks as we can to, to participate on that day. It'll be a really uh, a good one to, to enjoy the company, but also raise a lot of money for these programs at the GSGA. I'll tell you, Ralph, it's so exciting to see you in this leadership position because I've now worked with... Probably th- uh, three or four different allied associations with what I do, and and the Georgia State Golf Association has so much good going on. the The adaptive program they have for for golf, adaptive golfers, I have not seen anything that even comes close to it. It is so awesome. I saw their club ch- their championship last year at Bobby Jones Golf Course. Just yeah. such an inspiring day. And I'll tell you what. They can play. Like I couldn't beat anybody in that thing. It was yeah. such a cool, cool day to be a part of. But um to see you now adding your leadership and your experience to an already thriving uh, group there in georgia, it's it's an exciting
2: time for golf. Well, thank you. And, and as I say, we want at the association we're we're a leader in the nation in uh, adaptive golf programming, and uh, we will want to continue that. We wanted to uh, continue to drive with youth on course. We want to continue our play days to get uh, members across the state out and playing courses that they haven't played and just on a social basis, not in in a competition. And then we want to continue to make sure that our championships are competed at the highest level. uh, Whether it's men's, women's or juniors championships or uh, some of the senior championships, we want to make sure that they are being competed at the highest level, but as I said earlier, the, the game is changing, the faces of the people change, uh, are changing, and the reason why people play the game is changing, and we have to be willing to adapt that programming to adjust to those needs. And we need to continue to ask the new coffers and the people in the game today what they want and not assume things, but it just just continue to ask, well, what is it that they want? And, and you guys are, are fulfilling a, a need because, you know, the, the, there's a place for uh, clubs uh, without real estate. That, that there, There's a place for that. And people just want to be a part of. It. So, you know,
0: yeah, I think it's good. <clears throat> Thanks, Rob. Everybody deserves to have a golf community because golf communities make the game a heck of a lot more fun. Uh, if you don't have friends to beat up on, I mean, you know,
2: what, what are you doing? Uh, and it, bring, it brings other value, just that 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 guy to, to rib and, and the guy to, to abuse when you beat him. Or <laughs> exactly. Him, but
0: yeah. Exactly. Well, Mr. Stokes, thank you. Professor, thank you. Uh, thank you to everyone for listening this week. Have a great rest of your week, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> Professor. What'd you think about our conversation there with Mr. Stokes?
1: The audience probably is like, was I even part of that interview? Because I just caught myself just listening and not even trying to formulate questions or think about questions. Uh, just, it's awesome anytime you get someone that has such a rich perspective and rich set of experiences to just share their story and the different things he's done and accomplished is, is inspiring, it makes me want to, you know, the cliche run through the wall sort of idea. and. I'm incredibly excited about the GSGA, what they're gonna be doing. And they're, I'm gonna go on record and say they're gonna become a beacon of state, state organizations and what state organizations should seek to do beyond just run tournaments, right? I think in five to 10 years from now, hope most states are gonna look at the GSGA and be like, that's what we should be doing. Um, and hopefully the USGA in that looks at GSGA and helps like spread that word. Uh, but the one thing I really appreciated about His commentary, especially around accessibility, because he can speak to that better than we can in terms of everything he's gone through and and worked through uh, in his life, is that he was really holding on to the traditions of the game, the spirit of the game in his messaging. So it wasn't that so much like we need to change the game and that's going to bring more people into it or whatever. It's like, no, people want to come to the game, but we need to make sure is what they're coming to is the tradition and soul of the game and not this bastardization that we've created in the United States and U S golf, right? Like we need more of the authenticity of the game and what was at the roots of the game. That's what they need to be coming to. Cause if they do, that is going to be accessible to everybody. That is going to be something most people are interested in participating in. And it's going to keep their interest and draw them. We need you certainly accommodate changes of society and bringing that in, but that doesn't mean the roots of the game need to change, right? Because the roots are a game of equity in variety and just the human spirit, right? That is the roots. And people are gonna be attracted to that. If that's what's there for them when they come into golf, most people are gonna stay within golf. The tradition and, and inclusivity,
0: the balance there was one of my big takeaways. So thank you for for bringing that up. I don't think it's any coincidence the man's favorite place on the planet as a whole experience was Muirfield. And I know like they've had their past, but anyone who's been to Muirfield in the last, I don't know what, five years, um, that what well, the way they do it you know where they respect tradition but they're they're waking up and saying we got to be more inclusive we got to allow women we need to to make sure that our guests you know, we will explain in excruciating detail what our traditions are so that people can be a part of it. In golf, we just yell at people for playing slow. We don't reach out to them and say, hey guys, here is our tradition of brisk play at our club. Here is the requirement. Here is what we put out there. Have a great time. Check in on them every third hole. Say, you know, and he he brought up so many great examples that I just uh, uh, align with. And And my other takeaway is this. He, uh, I was clearly very excited to talk to Ralph today. When I found out his story, um, every page I turned in his book got me more and more enthralled with the man and looking forward to our conversation. Uh, we share, you know, at New Club, Mark and I from day one always talked about inclusivity and, you know, the challenges of, of the golf biz and and the places that, you know, Mark, you know, being an Asian American, has felt that himself in places that that he didn't feel welcome. So we always felt like that was, you know, integration and uh, advancement of of inclusivity was part of our mission. It is our deeper mission. And uh, and then I found out the man was a salesman. I mean, come on, that is a that is a fraternity in itself. Like I, I, there is this thing with with salespeople and not if you if you haven't been a you know true reliant on people saying yes for you to make money and and survive. There's this thing that we have, which is a superpower, and it's the ability to handle discomfort. And Ralph Stoke has it in, like he is the Superman of that ability. I mean, think about the racism that he endured and he had to sit across the table, not just once, but multiple times with the same people that didn't want him there. But he just said, "I, I gotta be better. I got to be better and I will not let these people hate me. That's, that's what his approach kind of was. And, uh, and salespeople can so identify with that. And, and I think if you're a salesperson listening, just remember that you've built that, that skill set and, and you can use it for a lot of good in this world. A lot of people kind of cheapen the sales industry as, you know, the sleazy salesman. And that is that is true in, in a lot of cases. We've all been burnt by uh, a bad sales guy and it doesn't feel very good and it sits with us. But I think the, the real value of that is you have that ability to take on discomfort. So take it on for people because that's, that's the truth of this matter, right? Is Ralph Stokes has that ability. He conquered situations with strength and grace. But there's a lot of people out there that don't have that superpower. They can't take that discomfort. And for them, they just need to feel comfortable. And we have to change the world so that they are comfortable. You know, I, I, I talk about, we talked a lot about race on this this episode, but uh, women in golf. Women in golf is, I know we're going to do a full episode on it. And we really got to think hard about who our guest is going to be so that, you know, it makes an impact on those listening. But the, the, now that I have two daughters that I clearly, the way the world, golf world world works today, they're not going to have the same opportunities that their dad did. Just in, in the nature of the misogyny that exists and the, the things that are holding back, uh making them uncomfortable. There's a ton of things that make them uncomfortable that I I honestly had no uh, idea of. And so I think those that need to take on that discomfort and have those conversations and not not be angry at people, you know, not not yell and, and kick and scream, but to to just advance it in the right direction and and you know talk about that inclusivity, talk about dignity and respect and equality for everybody that loves golf right and and that is wh- why i think just i'm ready to run through a wall after talking to the guy cuz he he laid out the blueprint for it he had a plan and he he did it
1: yeah integrity right like we're committed as part of new new club to certain ideals and integrity means that we embrace that commitment i think for those of us that get to live in a place of comfort, which you and I do, right? We're white males come from stable families. Like on that privilege scale, we get to take 27 steps forward, right? That's where we get to start. It's it's on us to put ourselves in places of discomfort, right? And that means having those hard conversations, raising them when it's appropriate to do so and not yelling at people or whatever, but like taking those opportunities to put our own, or ourselves in those places of dis- discomfort to help be drivers of change. Um, Bingo. And and,
0: and to yeah. your point uh, about, you know, that's how the brain develops. I know you've talked to me a lot about that. It's a good place to be. The discomfort is not a bad place to be. It you you will grow as a person. You will work out muscles that you had never worked out before, and uh, golf is a great metaphor for that, right? When you're uncomfortable in golf, you are progressing. Things are getting mm-hmm. better. You're putting yourself in situations that you know, competitive golf, great example. I still am terribly uncomfortable with the lead of a tournament or up anywhere close to the top. But every time I do it, I learn a little bit something about myself. And that discomfort is teaching me to be really good in the end. So I I, uh, I, I totally, um, it's just a, a very human thing that we all need to, to do for each other. Uh, we got the spring meeting coming up real close, Professor 28th and 29th. Thanks to Golf Blueprint for supporting us on that one. Have you seen the format for the tournament yet?
1: A little bit. Uh, it's going to be fun as always. Um, it's, Cove, it's a wild like, one. You can't you can't mimic what they do anywhere else. So every the formats we get to throw out there, it is going to the we, members are going to be pumped.
0: We pulled in uh, uh, Matt Adamski, the general manager of Sweetens Cove, to you know, review what we had proposed. We made some tweaks based on his suggestions, which were fantastic. And uh, if you're coming down, just come with an open mind that the game of golf can be played in a variety of different formats. This one's gonna be really cool. We got uh, a ton of free play too. It's only three rounds competitively or three nine hole rounds competitively. And then uh, the rest of it's gonna be us playing Sweetens Cove as it should be played, which is uh, a wonderful way to enjoy the game. Professor, thanks for the time. Thanks, everybody, for listening. See you on the next one.